Well, today we get, uh, get back to the Gospel of Mark. We left Mark way back in, seems like forever ago, way back in the beginning of June. And when we left, we had made it pretty much halfway through this Gospel. Mark is 16 chapters long, and we ended last time at the end of chapter 8, actually one verse into chapter 9. And so it's it's good to get back to the gospel as it was good to preach through the Psalms in the summer and it was good to do a series on the church the last couple of weeks, just reminding us about our priorities as a church as we go into a new ministry year. But it is good back to get back to the gospels. We know that all of the Bible is true and all of the Bible is inspired, but there's, there's something special about being able to study the life of Jesus, the life of our Savior. After all, Jesus is the main subject of the Bible, everything Before the Gospels, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And everything after the Gospels is always looking back at the life of Jesus and looking back at the death and the resurrection of of our Lord. Jesus is the central character of the Bible, and and that's because that Jesus is, is God. Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is the high point of revelation. Jesus is God's chosen Savior. Jesus is God's uh, great plan for rescuing sinners from the shackles and from the, from the chains that bind us, the chains of sin. Jesus is God the Father's great act of love toward a people that have rebelled against him, toward a people that have broken his laws. And so the Gospels, as we read through them, the Gospels continue to challenge us. We are challenged in the Gospels with the person of Jesus. How will we think about this Jesus? Jesus actually asked that question about himself where we left off last time. In chapter 8, verse 29, he says, Who do you say that I am? And that question is the question that everyone must answer. What will we do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Jesus will either attract people to him in faith or he will repel people and they will reject him. And with Jesus, there is no gray area. There's no in-between. People will receive him or reject him. It was C.S. Lewis who said that best, especially for those people, he said, who say that Jesus was only a good teacher. But that's as far as they'll go with Jesus. Lewis says that when you read the Gospels, just a good teacher is not an option. Here's his quote from uh, Mere Christianity. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with uh, with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any of this patronizing nonsense of his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. End quote. And so Jesus confronts all of us in the Gospels. Although his being sent by God to earth is God's great act of love and an amazing act of grace, Jesus confronts people. You must either receive him 
or reject him. And so the Gospels are where we behold this Christ. It's where we see Christ. It's where we see this God-man who walked on this very same earth that we live on and walk on and breathe on. It's where we see him doing remarkable things. It's where we see him defeat evil. It's where we see him confront time and time again self-righteous people. It's where we see him have compassion and mercy. It's where we see God on earth. And in a very profound way, we really all have to see Christ and behold Christ. We have to see him as the Son of God and the Son of Man. And we have to see him as our only hope for eternal life. And when we get to Mark chapter 9, we'll get another glimpse of who Jesus is. But this glimpse is different. It's Jesus in a way that at least three of his followers have never, ever seen him before. They're, they're initially kind of freaked out. But in the end, this display and the miracle that comes right after it will, will prove to encourage them. And by extension, as his disciples now will encourage us to keep following this Jesus, to keep following this Christ. So I'd ask you, if you haven't yet, to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9. And again, I encourage you, if you come, if you're new here, make sure you bring your, your Bibles. I encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some in the pew in front of you, and you feel free to take those. those. Those are yours. We want you to have a Bible. And if you can, also bring a pen. We'd love for you to bring a pen so you can take notes. Uh, you can email me during the week, ask me questions afterwards. Uh, mark down some of those things that you learn. It would help, help you. Mark 9, verse 2. We read verses 14 to 29. I want to kind of read up to verse 14, starting at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that, Elijah, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This passage is what has come to be known as the, as the transfiguration. It's, it's quite an amazing scene. Here, here Jesus is changed. The Greek word here is metamorphothe. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. And a change happened. 
Here, God's voice is heard. In this passage, we have strange thing. We have two Old Testament saints that show up. Mark actually reports this story by, by picking up some of the things that happened way back in, in Exodus 24 on another mountain when God met Moses on, on Mount Sinai. Back in Exodus 24, just like this story, there's three people who go up with Moses. Moses, Nadab, and Abihu, along with uh, 70 elders. But these three kind of become the focus. Kind of like Jesus with Peter, James, and John. And just like in Mark, there's a cloud there in Exodus 24. And the first words of Mark 9-2 are, and after six days. In Exodus 24, it talks about the cloud, the, the glory of the Lord covering the mountain for, you guessed it, for six days. And then when Moses is up on the mountain, he hears a voice. The voice of God, just like we have here in Mark 9. And so, so Mark is making all these connections as a way to point out that, that something special is going on up here on this mountain. God is about to speak to man. God is about to show himself to humankind. God is about to reveal something about himself. Here on this mountain, for just a few minutes maybe, the veil of humanity is taken off of Jesus. It's not like Jesus was putting on a mask here. It's like he was taking off a veil of, of humanity. And we just catch a tiny glimpse of who Jesus really is, that he is the Son of God. Mark, and, and I think Mark is probably taking notes from what Peter is reporting when he writes his gospel. Mark says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as, as no one on earth could bleach them. So we read here that Jesus changed, and even his clothes changed. They became intensely white, now, just as an aside, you might remember that when the Bible describes the transformation that happens with us when we become believers, it, it pictures us as, as putting off old, our old clothes and getting new clothes, as actually our clothes being, being taken off and, and us getting new ones. Our, our filthy clothes signifying our sins are removed because we can't stand in God's presence with those. But what gets put on us? What are we covered with? It's the perfect righteousness of Christ. Here's the way Isaiah foresaw it in Isaiah 61. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in the Lord, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Whose garments of salvation and robes of righteousness are these that we are covered with? Well, they are the perfect, spotless, intensely white garments of Christ with which we are clothed by God. Well, the rest of this story has Moses and Elijah showing up. We're not told how they recognized them. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah up there? Doesn't say us. Doesn't tell us, but they, they recognize him. Some Bible scholars say that Moses and Elijah might have re represented both the law and the prophets. And also, there's a reference in the last few verses of the Old Testament in Malachi to both uh, Moses and Elijah as part of the preparation for the coming of Messiah, the, the preparation for the day of the Lord. And so their appearance probably is just making the connection to Jesus being part of God's plan from the very beginning of God now revealing himself to his 
to his people. But before we get to what comes next in this, in this amazing event, I just want to shift to go from what happened here to why it happened. And, and, and the purpose behind this uh, out-of-the-world stuff that's going on up there on this mountain. You have to remember, when you read this story, who's up there watching this? This stuff didn't just happen when, when Jesus was off by himself up on this mountain. You know, sort of just Jesus and his Old Testament guests with, with the Lord having a conversation. Jesus very purposely, verse 2 says, took with him Peter and James and John. And he was transfigured before them. Or look at verse 4. It says, there appeared to them, to all of them, including the three disciples, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And verse 7, it says, a cloud overshadowed them. Not just overshadowed Jesus, it overshadowed all of them. And the voice in the cloud seems to be instructing Peter, James, and John. He seems to be instructing these three, listen to him. This is my beloved son, listen to him. So this entire scene on that mountain is directed to the disciples. It's, he's giving instructions, in a sense, for them, even though he's not giving any commands or anything. But this would be instructive for them, this scene that they're observing. And it was something they would definitely never forget. In fact, both John and Peter write about it later. John says, we beheld his glory. And, and Peter writes about it in Second Peter, that they were there witnessing the glory of Jesus. And what they witnessed there, in that way, would come back to encourage them down the road. So what did this mean for the disciples? And what does it mean for us? Well, there are at least three ways from this story and from the one that comes next that we read about earlier that seeing Jesus' glory should encourage us. Three ways that this beholding of the glory of Christ should encourage all of us even today. Number one, it helps them see that Jesus is all that they will ever need. You see this sort of thread throughout both of these stories. But on that mountain, when Peter, James, and John first see Moses and Elijah there, they're very obviously wondering what's going on. But they don't just wonder. <laughs> One of them just can't not say something. Guess who that might be? Peter. Peter always has to say something. And here again, Peter just has to speak up. And so he says in verse 5, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Tents. He, he just wanted them to stay for a while. Maybe grab some sticks and leaves and, and, and make a tent. But Peter's request, in a lot of ways, is understandable. The word tent there is the same word. Some of your translation might even have it translated as tabernacle. The place that provided cover, that provided shelter for, for God's glory when the people of Israel were, were wandering in the, in the wilderness. And a place where the leaders went to meet with God. It was called the tent of meeting. It sort of, in, in some ways, provided a, a bridge that would fill the gap between God and, and man in which people could meet with God and not die. But Peter did not understand that God was going to fill that gap with Jesus. Jesus would be the, the, the tabernacle, the tent that would end the need for all tabernacles and tents. 
Jesus would be the way to meet with God. He would be that meeting place. And just to prove that, look what happens in verse 7 and 8, back in Mark 9. The cloud comes, a voice speaks, and then verse 8, looking around, what did they see? They no longer saw anyone with them, mark these words, but Jesus only. Jesus only. Jesus alone. Jesus would be all they needed. Jesus is all any of us need. There's no more intermediate steps to get to God. No more tents in which to meet the Lord. We all get to God through Christ and through Christ alone. This was a visible lesson for them about the sufficiency of Jesus. And God himself confirmed that lesson not only visibly, but audibly. You hear this voice come, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's Jesus that's ultimately important. It's the words of Jesus that ultimately matter and are full of authority, full of power. In John 6, this same Peter looks at Jesus and Jesus says, or, or, you know, some of his disciples had left, and, and uh, Jesus says, you guys want to go too? And Peter looks at Jesus and says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? And here, by taking them up on this mountain, by showing them his glory, Jesus gives these three disciples probably a very needed reminder and a needed encouragement as Jesus was about to head resolutely toward the cross where he would die. And that's a great reminder for us too as people who follow Jesus. We all have circumstances in our lives when we try to fill our lives with other stuff, when we, when we think if, if only I had that, then I'd be happy. Or when things go, go sideways or when we uh, miss something or when we miss someone. Maybe a spouse has left you and you think, you know, I'm just not going to be complete unless I get married again to fill that need. Or maybe you have a loved one that has passed away and you wish you could just have him or her back. We always need this reassurance that Jesus is with us and that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is sufficient. Now, God in his kindness always gives us added blessings yes but if we have Jesus we have everything we need for what really matters we need to be we need to remember that we need to be encouraged by that do you trust Christ alone is being is having Jesus being united with him in faith is that enough number two The transfiguration helps them, helps us to see that suffering comes before glory. Suffering comes before glory. In verse 9, the three disciples are coming down the mountain and Jesus tells them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, looking at what happens next, the disciples clearly didn't hear about the risen part. They only heard about the dead part. They're only thinking about the suffering, and and suffering and death in their minds did not fit their conception of Messiah. They thought Messiah would be a ruler, 
And that he would rule in, in power and, and, and that he would establish his, his kingdom in the world right now. Back in chapter 8, Jesus actually made that same kind of prediction. Predicted it once before there in chapter 8, verse 31. And he got the same kind of reaction. There it said that Peter actually started to rebuke Jesus. But Jesus, both here and back there, said that it has to be this way. Jesus must suffer. This was a, an indispensable part of his mission. Part of the reason that he came. But for the disciples at that moment, in their limited understanding, it was hard to take. And so here they bring up some prophecies about Elijah having to come before the day of the Lord. The, the same ones that I talked about before from Malachi 4. And they were right. Elijah would come. But then Jesus throws them a real curveball. He says Elijah already did come. And not only did he come, but he also suffered. This Elijah that Jesus is talking about, and that Malachi was talking about, is John the Baptist. And he was already killed by Herod. And read about that back in Mark chapter 6. And just like Elijah, Jesus predicted that he himself would suffer. Jesus would suffer. And ultimately, the disciples would suffer too. Suffering comes before glory. So the transfiguration, this display of glory that they saw up on this mountain, served to remind the disciples of that fact. But, and not only remind them of that, but to encourage them through it. When Jesus would suffer just a few weeks later, and, would they, and when they would be persecuted just a, a little while after that. Remember we talked about just a couple of weeks ago how James, this very same James that was up on that mountain was killed by Herod in Acts 12. But when they would be persecuted, they could think back on that glorious experience on the mountain and say, ah, this is all part of God's plan. And glory is on the other side. For Jesus, suffering had to precede glory. That's how Jesus would accomplish his, his, his mission, was through suffering. But for his disciples and for us, we should expect that same kind of path too. But when we do go through it, we can be encouraged by the transfiguration. And we should be encouraged by the fact that we can follow the same path of our Savior, at least to some degree. And then we'll know that suffering Mark this, is not a sign of God abandoning us. It's a sign of fellowship with Jesus. Jesus came down that mountain with them. In Philippians 3.10, Paul says he knows the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship, the participation, the, the sharing of his sufferings. He, he rejoiced in that he got to have fellowship with Christ's sufferings. So the transfiguration should encourage you to endure hardship. When you face trials of various kinds, when you face pain, when you face loss, when, when, you, when you are reviled, when people at work, when people at school, people on your sports team malign you for the stand that you have taken, when some of you might even be persecuted for your faith, you can remember who this Jesus that you follow really is. 
He is glorious. He is resurrected from the dead. He is alive at the right hand of the Father. He is with you through His Holy Spirit. And He is coming back again to take you with Him to be where? To be in glory. So this transfiguration is a taste of what is to come. And it's encouragement for us to walk through whatever it is that we need to walk through until we get to the other side, until we get to glory. But before that, as long as we live in this fallen world, we should expect suffering. And if we need to be reminded of that fact, we just need to come down the mountain with Jesus and his disciples to see what they run into. They come from this place of glory, this, this heightened place where they saw the, the glory means heaviness in the Old Testament, where they saw the, the heaviness of Christ. We just need to come down the mountain with Jesus and, and his disciples to see what they run into there. They come from this place, and, and just like Moses came down from the mountain to find this chaotic scene as people were, were partying and reveling around this golden calf, here Jesus, Peter, James, and John run into chaos too. Mark puts this next story in here to, to highlight that chaos and to, and to make a contrast and to show exactly what it is that we face here on this earth. What do they see when they get down? They see the other nine disciples. They see a crowd. They see arguing scribes. And they see a boy with a spirit that's throwing him into convulsions. This boy's dad had asked the disciples before these, these others had come down from the mountain to heal his son. But they couldn't do it. And after that glorious scene on the mountain where they saw glory, this is what they find. With this scene, they come back down to earth. They get really jolted back to reality. But how Jesus responds to this situation shows us another way that we should be encouraged. And so number three there on your outline, and, and, and really this takes the first point a bit farther, is that we can be encouraged, or this, these stories encourage us to fix our faith and our hope on Jesus. This scene in verses 14 to 29 encourages us toward a sense of desperation for Jesus, a, a desperation that shows itself in faith, in trust, in, in, in total reliance on Jesus. And out of all the characters in this last section, we don't find that desperate attitude in the nine disciples. We don't find it in the scribes. We don't find it in the crowd. Instead, we eventually find it in the father of this young boy. The father is the only one in this, in this scene who admits weakness. Jesus will tell us that faith is the issue there in verse 19. After he finds out what's going on, it says, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long can I be with you? How long can I bear with you? And he says, Bring the boy to me. It sounds like Jesus is at a point of exasperation, a point of frustration. But when he says, bring the boy to me, we know he's about to teach a lesson. And he's not just going to solve their problem. He could have done that. He could have just healed the boy and the situation would be over. And he could have just done what they were unable to do. But he's not going to do just that. He's going to teach them something about himself, something about his supremacy, something about his power, and something about the way that we should think about the Savior. This boy has a spirit there, and it's called an evil spirit. 
And Mark gives us a pretty detailed description about what the spear does to the boy. It throws him into convulsions. It throws him into a seizure. In Matthew's count, he's actually called an epileptic. That's, that's kind of what this seizure sounds like, an epileptic seizure. But it says there in Matthew that the seizures are caused by a demon. We already know from earlier in Mark that evil spirits and demons have power over people. But when Jesus shows up and when Jesus commands them, they always listen. Evil spirits are always under his authority. They have a great authority over people, but they don't have authority over God and over the Son of God. If he tells them to leave, they leave. They're gone. But Satan always wants to distort the image of God in people. God has created us in his image. Satan wants to destroy that image. And this is a very graphic example. But one of the reasons that Jesus came is to bind the strong man. That's what he says in Mark, back in Mark 3. He came to defeat the devil and evil, and he came to restore the image of God. He does that ultimately by dying on the cross and, and by being raised again. But throughout the Gospels, Jesus gives object lessons just like this one to show that he came to heal what Satan has come to destroy, or what Satan tries to destroy. The power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus is without rival. But that part of the story, it's an important part of the story, but it's almost just on the periphery of, of this account. It's not the main point. The center of this story is in Jesus' interaction with the Father, there in verses 21 to 24. Jesus is going to get at the Father's heart here. And so he asks him how long this condition has been going on. And the Father gives him the basic medical history of this child. But at the end of verse 22, the Father says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And with that comment, Jesus is about to teach a lesson on faith. And he does it with a grammar lesson. If you can... His father's probably thinking to himself, Jesus, I'm desperate here. I've got no time for grammar. But his son's sickness, his son's evil spirit, that's not a problem for Jesus. The issue is always how we think about Jesus. And with Jesus, there's no such thing as I can or I can't. This is not a question of ability. It's sometimes appropriate for us to ask Jesus if this is your will. Do this or that. If, if it's your will, can you heal my son? That would have been okay. But we should never question God's ability to do something. So what is the issue here? The issue is always faith and trust. Verse 23, Jesus speaking now. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, we can take this verse to some extremes that aren't there. It's not that it's our faith or lack of faith that makes God have to do something or not do something. But faith is, is, is always, seems to be the thing that connects us to God's power. It's like, a, it's like an extension cord, basically. You can plug one end into a, whatever, into a laptop or a power tool or a toaster, whatever it is. But until you plug the other end until, into the source of the power, into the wall, there's no power. And so in that same way, God's power is connected to faith. 
And then the next verse, I love it. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. This shows us that faith is necessary. But it also teaches us that even a very small faith is sufficient. We are all like that father in some ways, aren't we? In our heads, we, we believe. And we even want to believe more. But our faith always seems to be mixed with wrong motivations or, or a sense of doubt. Isn't it good to know that Jesus understands that? It's not that the Bible ever condones doubt. But Jesus understands our weakness. And in fact, it's when we are weak, when we are desperate, it's those sort of times that increase our faith. And so there's one key word that this father uses, and he uses it twice. And you can circle it if you feel like circling things in your Bible. In verse 22 and again in verse 24, he uses it. It's the word help. Jesus, help us, verse 22. Jesus, help my unbelief, in verse 24. When we cry out to God, help! It's an acknowledgement of our, of our total dependence on God and on His power. Faith is admitting that we are powerless, that we are helpless, and that God is powerful and able to help us. Just thought of that when Wayne, Pastor Wayne talked about the Sunday school class, the title of that. I really want to change, so help me, God. We can't change without God's help. and We have to cry out to him for help, just like this father did. It's where we all have to get. That's what this boy's dad did, and that's what we need to do. If you, if you notice the end of the story, it's also the same thing that the disciples didn't do. They tried to fix this child in their own power. But when they asked Jesus at the end there why they couldn't cast out the evil spirit, while they were up on the mountain, Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by, any, by anything but what? But prayer. Well, what is prayer but admitting that I can't, but God can? Prayer is putting your faith in, not in yourself, but in Jesus. It's putting your faith in God. And it's that kind of faith that pleases God. The best description I've seen about the, the right way to think about ourselves is a, is a two-word description from Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross. Looking at this father begging Jesus for faith, Keller says that in order to access the presence of God, we need to have a repentant helplessness. Love that. Repentant helplessness. Repentant in that it acknowledges our small faith, just like this father did. And helplessness in that it acknowledges God's great power. That's what faith is. Faith is admitting the gap between our great inadequacy and God's great provision. It's admitting our inability and God's sovereignty. It's throwing ourselves before God and on His ability and not on our own. So this story of the transfiguration of Jesus and this story of the desperate father are two great pictures of who Christ is. That he is glorious, that he is pure, that he is holy, and that he is our helper, 
our salvation, our Savior. He's God's Son. He's our only hope. If you're not a Christian, you're here today. If you, if you have not seen Jesus as anyone more than a figure of history or, or, or anyone more than a great moral teacher, or maybe you see him as irrelevant, or you flat out rejected the Christ of Christianity, then I pray that God would use this glimpse here in Mark 9 of the glorious Jesus as the one thing that would remove that veil from your eyes and that would help you to see Jesus for who he really is, that he is God, that he has come to earth to save people from their sins. And I pray that you would see yourself as someone that needs saving, someone who has been created by God but has broken his laws and now stands condemned. I pray that you would behold, that you would see Jesus. God in his great love has sent his son to rescue sinners Jesus, the Son of God, came down from heaven as a man and he lived a perfect life. He, he met the requirements that you have not met and that you could not meet. He was without sin. And yet he took, took upon himself, upon his perfect body, the punishment that, that, that you should have received for your sins. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus died on a cross for your sins. And now you must repent. You must turn away from your sins in sorrow and believe in Christ and what he did on that cross for you. And if you are a Christian, these stories give us a great glimpse into the glories of Christ and and into the glories that await us. And they encourage us to endure hardship while we're still here before glory, to see, to see Christ as sufficient and, and glorious and to see him as our, our helper in, our t- in the time of need. Keep looking to Christ is the encouragement from this word. Keep looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Let's pray.